So this morning I I mentioned um, I mentioned dukkha, this Pali word that includes the you know the whole range of what we would call the unpleasant experiences of life. You know the dissatisfaction, the suffering, the dis-ease, the discomfort. And actually then later today I read a, a new translation by Thich Nhat Hanh of, of the Heart Sutra. I mean, new, as about 18 months old. Um, and in that one he translates Dukkha as ill-being. I actually really like that. Hmm? Ill-being. Ill-being. Yeah. So anyway... I just thought I'd throw that out, a new one. So I was speaking about dukkha and about the way we habitually or kind of instinctively um, contract in response to meeting the painful um, or the unpleasant. And I want to say more about that just to depress you a little bit long, a little bit more. You probably found out that's kind of one of the things I enjoy doing. <laughs> Kidding. So I want to say more about it because seeing this, yeah, seeing this is is no small thing, yeah. It's really uh, really helpful. Really, really helpful. So I wanted to kind of break down the process um, a little bit more. And I promise I'm going to talk about other things as well. Okay. So breaking down the process. So we were talking about the experience of some discomfort in the body, yeah, some tension um, in the body or pain in the body. And when we pay attention to our experience, we'll see that initially there's the meeting of that or the experiencing of that as unpleasant. Yeah, so discomfort in the body, unpleasant. Yeah. And then from that unpleasant will come some degree of what I've been calling contraction. Okay. And this can be physical contraction around it in the body or it can also be mental contraction so certain types of thinking or just a sense of a narrowing down of the space in the mind around that experience so some of the mental stuff in order of appearance will be oh this is unpleasant I don't like it (laughs) and Usually that will be followed by, oh, I don't like this. I don't want it. Yeah. And then that might kind of be followed by, I don't want it. I need to get away from it. Or I need for this to stop. Yeah. So do you see that process of escalation? I don't like, I don't want, I can't stand. Yeah. Do you see that's a process that happens to us as humans? This process of escalation. So this is this is what happens internally. It can also, you know, happen with external things. Yeah, 
not just in our own body, in our own experience, but, you know, I kind of had a moment of that today walking, um, you know, around the back of the garden here to the compost toilet, and there's a compost toilet guy house, in case you don't know, and noticing how dry the grass is, you know, I kind of really noticed it, really hit me. I've never seen it like this. Yeah. It just really hit me. And then noticing the contraction. I don't want to see this. I don't want to feel this. Yeah. Yeah. Just like so. Ah. Oh. Yeah. So it can happen in relation to, you know, experience in our body, in our inner life, and when we meet something external as well. The same process. So process of escalation and these layers of contraction and um, reactivity there. And this process, as I, as I said, it's really, um, it's really a key process to, to freedom, actually, to, to notice that, to get to know it. And the Buddha taught a lot in similes and images yeah, very, very beautiful. And, and one of these um, is the simile of the two arrows, which really describes this process so beautifully. Yeah. So he was speaking about, you know, it's at often how we relate to, to dukkha in life is as if we were hit by an arrow. Yeah. So that's the initial, you know, pain in the body, sight of the dead grass and the dry earth yeah that's the initial and then it's as if we shoot and a second arrow yeah which is the contraction and the reactivity yeah I just I can't yeah I can't exactly remember the words of the sutta but you know he tends to use quite strong language <laughs> about these things yeah I think something like you know, with the, that the reaction is like pain and beating the chest and <laughs> kind of making a big drama. Yeah. That we kind of add on. These are the layers of reactivity. So in this simile, he's drawing a really, really important distinction for us. Yeah, really helpful. Distinction between unavoidable dukkha yeah, unavoidable dukkha, yeah, the dukkha of having a human body, which means that this body gets sick, it ages, it's subject to pain, it dies, yeah. The, the dukkha, the unavoidable dukkha of being in a world that's impermanent and changing, so we're subject to loss, yeah, to grief, you know, all these things, that's, that's the dukkha that's unavoidable. The distinction between that, which is the first arrow, and the second, which is, you know, what we'll call workable dukkha, yeah? Or sometimes we say optional dukkha, yeah? Things that we can work with, that we can attend, which is that reactivity that we add on to experience. Can you see this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, we can see this in our own experience, as especially, you know, after three days on retreat, which I know for some of us has been, you know, between 50 and 99% tiredness so far. <laughs> I don't know what's going on this time. 
Um, but, you know, we can see that also with the tiredness. Yeah. We can see that distinction. We can begin to see in this way the unavoidable and the workable. So we really have the option of working with these second, third, fourth, fifth arrows that arise. And when we do that, we can see that the more we relax the reactivity, yeah, the more we let go of the reactivity, the more the dukkha also decreases. Yeah, that's the second arrow teaching. Yeah, the more we relax the reactivity, or the less reactivity, the less dukkha. which means that they are mutually dependent. Yeah? They depend on each other, they arise together, they support each other. So does this make sense to people? The more we relax the reactivity, the less reactivity, the less dukkha. We've been speaking about this, we've been touching on this over the days, you know, that welcoming attitude to experience that allowing attitude to experience, and then a sense of more space, more ease. Yeah. Big, you know, feeling a little more, a bigger container rather than a very small one. Yeah, so less dukkha as we do that. So in Dharma language, this kind of, we'll broadly say, this reactivity that we layer on to experience, the pushing away of what we don't like. Yeah, that pushing away is referred to as clinging, just to kind of bring in that word. Yeah, and this includes the pushing away of experience and the holding on to what is pleasant. Yeah, it goes both ways. And we can look at it as kind of, this is our, our attempt to control life. Yeah, it's kind of how we're trying to find happiness, yeah, by kind of trying to organize things, yeah, to control things, so that, you know, kind of less of the pleasant, more, uh, sorry, less of the unpleasant, whew, less of the unpleasant, more of the pleasant, yeah, and then, then I'll be happy, yeah, kind of, yeah, a bit more of this, a little bit less of that, and then I'll be happy, then things will be okay, and things will be good. So the same process yeah, that I've just described with the unpleasant also happens with the pleasant, and just to kind of highlight that. Yeah, that same clinging is at play. So, you know, something arises in our experience which is pleasant, and it goes, I like it, yeah, I want it, I want more of it. I want it to last forever. I need it to last forever. You know, the same process of escalation that goes on. Yeah. So that's also clinging, and there is contraction there as well. Yeah. So there's contraction with the unpleasant, with the pleasant as well as with the unpleasant. Which means that there is dukkha. <laughs> yeah. 
When there's contraction, there is dukkha. When there's dukkha, there is clinging. Yeah, they arise together. The three arise together. So there is dukkha even with the pleasant. What's she on about? (laughs) Hopefully all will be revealed. Let's see. So it can get confusing, you know, because, you know, often when we get what we want, yeah, the right kind of pleasant at the right time, in the right place, when we get what we want, we feel happy, right? Feels good. So what, what's this? What's this nonsense about dukkha? <laughs> yeah. What's this nonsense about dukkha? And equally, when we get rid of what we don't want, yeah, there can be a sense of relief and happiness. Yeah. So what's going on? Now, we all know that experience, you know, of kind of really waiting for the bell to ring at the end of a city. <laughs> God, they must have fallen asleep. Yeah. I actually had someone come up to me once in a meditation and check if I'd fallen asleep. <laughs> Honest, <laughs> it did happen. <laughs> yeah, she didn't have a watch on. Um, so there's that sense of relief, yeah? When the bell rings, it's like, oh, yes, got what I wanted. <laughs> the end of suffering is here. <laughs> the bell is rung, yeah. So there's that sense of relief and we associate it with, you know, getting what we want for the bell to ring and getting rid of what we don't want, which is sitting here in this hall, you know. We associate it with that. So it's worth looking at this a little bit more. So a while ago they did... um, an experiment that I happened to read about, looking at happiness. And uh, this was in the US. So they, I tell this story a lot, so some of you may have heard it, apologies. They put all these kind of sensors on people's skin that were measuring something that was um, indicative of kind of how happy the person was. And they sent these people to um, to go shopping in the shopping mall. And they were measuring, yeah, they were monitoring them and measuring these, whatever they were measuring on the skin. And what they found was that the experience of, or the level of happiness peaked. Any guesses? When people were the happiest in the process of shopping? You know, was it when they kind of saw what they were going to buy, fell in love with it? Was it when they walked out of the mall with their shopping bag? You know, when, when was it? When was it? So the peak, I won't leave you in suspense. <laughs> the peak was in the moment when they were standing in front of the, of the cashier, in front of the till, and handing over their credit card. That was the peak. Hmm. <laughs> so here's the analysis, not mine, the researchers. So the peak of the happiness is not when they got, you know, the shopping bag with their thing. It was at that moment when they knew it's theirs. Yeah, they're right there. They're handing it over. It's about to be mine. It's about to be mine. About to be mine. Yeah? 
And as soon as they got the shopping bag, yeah, it starts to go down. Yeah. So the relief, the sense of ease, what we associate with happiness, in this case at least, is not about the object. It's not about getting that thing. It's about the relief of the clinging and the contraction. Yeah. That release of the clinging and the contraction. Doesn't mean, you know, that we can't, you know, enjoy things. Yeah. We can and it's allowed even in a Buddhist meditation center. <laughs> yeah. By all means, enjoy. But that understanding, yeah, that understanding, the sense of relief comes from the change in the relationship. Yeah. When there's no longer that sense of, I want it. Yeah, I want it to be mine. So happiness or unhappiness is not reliant on the object. It's reliant on the degree of the clinging, which affects the degree of dukkha. That's what it's reliant on. And the same thing with the unpleasant, as kind of we mentioned this morning. Yeah, when we open, when the relationship changes to what is unpleasant, when we can meet the painful or the difficult with more openness, with more space. Yeah, and the degree of dukkha goes down. Degree of dukkha goes down. So not the object, the relationship. And I don't know, you probably haven't noticed, but every time I sit on this chair, let's see if I get it to do that. Can you hear it? It, it creaks, yeah, it creaks. And I think there's a lot of chairs here that creak, some of them more than others. And every time it creaks, it makes me laugh because I remember something which I'm going to tell you. It's about the relationship. So a few years ago, my, my partner was sitting a, a long retreat here. Actually, it was the November Solitary. And somewhere near him, someone was sitting on a really, really squeaky chair. You know, that kind of chair that if you just breathe, it goes, eh, eh. yeah, just breathe. So after the retreat, he told me, you know, the story about how, you know, he was like, oh, God, you know, that's squeaky. And here I am trying to get really gathered and, you know, planning to get into jhanas and whatever, you know, on this retreat. And every time the squeaky chair gets in the way. Yeah. So that was going on. Yeah. That problem. And, you know, he's quite... Some of you know him, he's quite a resourceful guy. So, of course, all kinds of ideas about how to change, switch that chair without the person noticing and you know, coming up. But, you know, he didn't actually act on it. Um, eventually, he came up with another solution, which was, what about if I change my relationship? So every time when that chair squeaks, instead of being a problem, it's like a mindfulness bell. Yeah. It's a reminder to come back, it's a reminder to be present. It's a reminder that there's other people here practicing. Yeah. And that became, you know, that, that chair <laughs> changed from being a, a problem to a gift. 
Yeah, because most of the time that worked. And the chair would squeak, and it was like, ah, here I am. Yeah. Or it would be kind of, can I include, as Caroline was speaking yesterday, can I include the chair in the kind of realm of what is acceptable? Yeah, can I include that squeak and in kind of becoming bigger and wider and deeper? So the relationship matters so much. You know, these are kind of, this is a small example. It matters so much. So we can change the relationship. You know, just like one of the, one of the phrases we're using in the practice together, may I see this as an opportunity for tender concern. Yeah, that's exactly that. We're changing the relationship. Can you see that? It's the same thing. Even if it's just an intention, even if we're not able to kind of really feel it in that moment, but we're making that intention, we're inclining the mind to that. May I see this as an opportunity for tender concern, for tenderness, whatever the this is. Changing the relationship. And so often, you know, and we can see this when we pay attention, that reduces the problematic aspect of the experience. It reduces the dukkha. So really to emphasize with all of this, you know, this doesn't mean that we don't enjoy what's enjoyable in life. Yeah? It doesn't mean that we don't attend to what needs attention, yeah, that we don't aspire to healing, yeah, to, to concern, to taking care. It does not mean that at all. It means actually the opposite. It's as we do this, as we recognize this relationship and the place the reactivity takes or plays its role, actually opens us up to appreciate life even more. Yeah, to be able to attend to what needs attention even more. So I used this phrase this morning, you know, compassion practice, meta practice, all of these, they, they expand the range, yeah? They expand the range of what we can open to. And another way of saying it was coming to me later, they expand the range of our sensitivity, yeah? Expand the range of our sensitivity. So these practic these practices, the immeasurables, you know, that we've that we're kind of exploring here together. One of the things they do is that they go directly, they go directly to the release of that clinging and the contraction and to the relief of the dukkha. Yeah, they go directly to that. It's like examples that I was giving this morning, you know, welcoming or opening to something that's unpleasant. And then that sense of more space, more ease. Yeah, that's a result of kind of the, the dukkha and the clinging going down, the contraction going down. And equally, we can start to see that when the mind and the body are more spacious, yeah, more at ease, 
it gets more tricky for contracted mind states to arise. I don't know if anyone's seen this yet. We can start seeing it. Yeah. And we can use our um, we can use our imagination with this. You know, if you imagine yourself feeling really relaxed and open, yeah, in the body and the mind and at ease. Would it easy to get would it be easy to get angry? If you're really kind of yeah, really relaxed, really open, really at ease. Yeah, how quickly would that catch? Yeah, that's something to kind of contemplate. So the immeasurables, they go directly to this <coughs> reactivity. <coughs> Sorry. This relationship to experience. And they also, as we've been saying, they really are a practice of cultivation. Cultivating development, developing the the wholesome and the beneficial. Yeah, the wholesome and the beneficial. And I want to say a little bit more about that. Sorry, I need to decide whether to cut a piece out or not. Yeah, so maybe I'll just say a little bit more about this. So, in Dharma teachings, there are three threads of practice. And I just want to highlight them a little bit in relation to the immeasurables. Um, just to kind of explain a little bit more about this aspect of cultivation. So the first thread of practice is, is referred to often as samadhi, um, usually translated as concentration, but more useful to, to um, relate to it as um, this calming, harmonizing, and unifying experience, yeah, the unif unification of mind and body in particular. And it, it's an, um, a thread of increasing our sense of well-being, yeah, increasing our sense of well-being, and a steadying of the heart-mind, and therefore a steadying of the practice. Really supportive both in integrating wisdom, integrating insight, and in um, cultivating a sense of resource, yeah, and rejuvenation. And it may not feel like that yet, I don't know, <laughs> but the immeasurables are really powerful for this part of the, of the practice. Real resource, yeah, a real harmonization of mind and body and heart, yeah, and a real kind of um, increase in well-being, um, sometimes immediately, sometimes over time. The second thread is the thread of insight, yeah, of seeing clearly and seeing in a way that supports freedom. Um, so, for example, you know, through the immeasurables practice, just noticing where I'm stuck, where my limits are, yeah, that really is a really important insight. Seeing where things are flowing for me, that's insight. 
um, exploring and experiencing the effects of the practice as we've been encouraging you to do. Yeah, that's all part of the insight kind of basket. Sometimes actually baskets are better than threads, I think. Deeper understanding of how the mind operates, how I operate as a human being, and from that, how we operate, yeah, how others operate too. Yeah, we can start to see just what I was describing now. Yeah, that process of from the unpleasant to the escalation and the dukkha. We start to see that. Deeper understanding of interconnectedness. Yeah, very, very powerful with the immeasurables. Yeah, some people reporting just, you know, yesterday in the exercise, just that sense of, you know, receiving metta from another, what kind of impact that has. Yeah, so a deeper understanding of interconnectedness. And more understanding of, you know, all the kind of crucial teachings, we can say, you know, impermanence, dukkha, as I was just describing, um, emptiness. Yeah, they can all really be supported through this practice of the immeasurables. And the third basket or the third thread is, is bhavana, um, usually translated as cultivation or bringing into being. Yeah, so it's bringing into our own being, embodying the wholesome, the beneficial. And also as we do that, as we bring it into being in ourselves, as we embody it, we're actually bringing it into being in the world. Yeah, this is really important, really connects to the interconnectedness. It cannot be here without being here. Yeah. So if it's as it's as it's cultivated within, it's cultivated in the world for all of us. And this, you know, this cultivation really makes, and we've been touching on this, that the immeasurables become, we kind of, I think Caroline was using this language, we become more primed, yeah, for them to arise. Yeah. So I can give an example from me that I've been noticing in the last months that I'll notice, I have a, quite an aversive mind, and I'll notice some, some aversion arising, and I'll find myself laughing. Yeah. Laughing is a response. I tell you, it's great. Yeah. Not always, unfortunately, but sometimes. So, you know, that's, that's a cultivation of joy. Yeah. That's a cultivation of friendliness. You know, it's okay that that's coming up. It's not who I am inside. I don't need to identify with that. Yeah. And then that in turn will then, you know, that's well-being. Yeah. So that in turn will nourish samadhi. So all, all of these kind of three threads, three baskets, they're interconnected between themselves. So wholesome mind states will arise more and unwholesome mind states will arise less and when they arise, they will take hold less. Yeah, they will take hold less. One of my favorite um, quotes from the Dalai Lama was when he was asked in an interview, if he still experiences negative emotions like anger and aversion. And, you know, you can probably all imagine what the first response was. What did he do? Any guesses? He laughed, of course. So he laughed. 
And then he said, of course I do, you know, I'm human. Yeah, of course I do, I'm human. But when they arise, it's like writing on water. Yeah, they arise, yeah, but they disappear. They don't take hold. Yeah. And that's, that's the power of cultivation, power of what we're doing now here, one of the things that we're doing. So I just wanted to kind of, just to give that, because sometimes having that reference point can be really helpful for us in our practice. You know, like just, ah, this is the well-being, this is the samadhi, this is the sense of unification or harmonizing. Yeah, this here's an insight, yeah. And here's a kind of fruit of the cultivation, or just, just keeping going as I keep going, even when it's difficult. Yeah, I'm cultivating, I'm nourishing that. And I wanted to say a little bit more about compassion this evening. Just a little bit more about compassion in particular, even though a lot of what I'm going to say about compassion is, is relevant to all the, all the immeasurables. So the first thing I, I really wanted to emphasize um, is that compassion once it kind of has a healthy flow within us, compassion strengthens us rather than depletes us. And for many of us, you know, we have this sense of compassion depleting or we have this fear of overwhelm, of depletion. And that's very natural, you know, and it's based on our experience when things are not sustainable. And, you know, for many of us, and, you know, if you're in the caring professions, very difficult to be sustainable. <laughs> yeah because the whole system isn't supportive of that. Yeah, so we have to take in the, large, um, the larger picture always with that. But also exploring it as something that can strengthen us, yeah, as a power and a source of strength. And one of the ways it does that is that it releases energy, yeah, and it releases, it gives space. Yeah, because if, you know, I was... Um, I was relating to this this morning, you know, if we're either contracted because we're trying to protect ourselves that we don't get overwhelmed, then a lot of energy is going into that contraction and we're losing a lot of space. Yeah. Or if we freeze because we don't know what to do, again, a lot of energy is in that frozen. There's not a lot of movement possible. So as compassion kind of flows more freely, through us, more healthily through us, more sustainably, a lot of energy is released to attend. And really important with that, part of what, you know, what, what it means, a wholesome flow of compassion, would be a little bit what we did this morning of noticing the effect and letting the compassion go where it needs to go. Yeah, so bringing it to ourselves. Yeah, bring it to ourselves as we feel the response to what is what is happening outside. So letting it go both ways. In my experience also, and this is connected to this um, sense of, of what, what gets released or what gets freed, is it, it also, compassion also really supports us um, to be more free of fear. Yeah, because again, a lot of that freezing and a lot of that protective contraction 
is about fear, fear of being overwhelmed. Yeah, fear of, fear of the pain. Yeah. So the more, the more we open to it, the more it kind of becomes wholesome and really being slow with this, yeah. Emphasizing not pushing, yeah. And the more free of fear we are. Which again, you know, supports us not to shut down and actually both resources us and opens us to, to the good in life. Yeah, Because when we shut down, we can't choose what we're shutting down from. Yeah, that's unfortunately the case. So it frees us up. Fear, more fearlessness, more movement. Here's a bit of a list coming up. So, compassion, and this again follows up from the previous point, really enhances our sense of intimacy with ourselves and with life. Really enhances our sense of intimacy. And our experience of what we share. Yeah, Shared humanity, shared um, beings on planet Earth. Yeah. You know, even if I go back to this experience with the grass today, yeah, feeling that shared, that shared resonance with the grass, with the earth. Yeah. So it really opens us up to that intimacy and that connection. And I have, I have the privilege to um, spend a lot of time in two very special places. Um, one is in a leprosy community in central India, and the other is in Palestine, um, with people living under occupation. And in both those places, I, I find that um, when I'm really there, <laughs> yeah, when I'm really there, the sense is actually of privilege to be there, yeah, of privilege to be there, privilege to be with others in the conditions of their lives. Yeah, in the conditions of, of their lives. And this is what I mean by, by when I say intimacy. There's something that feels so true and so right and so aligned in being with, you know, someone who's, you know, suffering the, con the social, emotional and physical consequences of, of, of living with leprosy or, you know, the emotional, physical and social consequences of living under um, oppression. Yeah, so there's something in that. And, you know, I also have the privilege of bringing other people to these places and to watch that flowering, that opening for others. Yeah, it's a real, a real blessing to see that from that sense of I need to protect to that sense of what what actually opens up and it's really like like a flower opening up to receive life and it's a real experience of intimacy and sharing yeah the the boundaries between giver and receiving and the ideas of helper and helped are kind of completely irrelevant completely irrelevant in, in this kind of situation. 
There's a, a wonderful, um, inspirational person called Gregory Boyle. On some retreats, I constantly quote his one of his books. Um, but he spent all of his adult life as a Jesuit priest in um, some of the poorest areas of Los Angeles, um, in areas where there's a lot of um, issues with gangs, and he works with gang members. And he always couldn't find his book in the library. No, there were two copies and they've disappeared. But anyway, so I'm quoting from my memory. Um, he speaks about this, that compassion, yeah, um, gets us in touch with our divinity, you know, which is his language as a Catholic, gets us in touch with our divinity. We can substitute that for whatever word we feel comfortable with, yeah, our goodness, our bestness, if we're using the language of best homes. And that we, that divinity, when we're in a place of compassion, we mirror it to each other. Yeah, so again, there's no helper or helped. Yeah, there's no giver and receiver. It's a mutual mirroring of kind of the best that we have as human beings. Yeah, and so it's a real, um, yeah, real aspect, you know, we've been touching on what is immeasurable about these qualities, and this is a real aspect of that. The kind of the, the divine in the human, yeah, that we can we can witness, we can get in contact with through this. And the last kind of aspect that I wanted to highlight with the compassion is, and actually again with all the immeasurables, is the ripple effects that they have that we sometimes well we can never tell what those are. Yeah, and we usually don't get to see them. Yeah, the ripple effects. Yeah, you know, someone was just sharing with me today a moment in their past where someone just did a very simple act of kindness. And that kind of, that impact that that has. And the person who did it, you know, for them it was just probably quite an ordinary moment in a day. And then the impact that that can have. And that's something, you know, we, we, can, we can bring to mind, we can reflect on yeah, in our own experience. How the simplest acts can be deeply transformative, yeah, for ourselves, for others. And we never know, you know, where the effect is going to end, yeah, immeasurable. We can never know where, how far it's going to reach, how far it's going to reach. So I just want to give a little example of this from, from my own experience. Um, and this is from, from Palestine. Um, so this is from a a work retreat that we hold in Palestine every year, uh, where you know people, meditators, come together um, to actually experience the the situation for for ourselves and um, to bring the qualities that we cultivate in meditation practice to the very intense, very difficult situation there. 
And as part of the retreat, um, the big emphasis is, of course, on compassion and friendliness and the other um, immeasurables. Um, and it's also really about um, meeting, yeah, meeting, meeting, getting to know for ourselves, getting to know for ourselves. And so as part of that, we, we meet every year with, also with, with a Jewish settler, yeah, which, you know, in that case, you know, we can say is the other, yeah. And very easily can become, you know, the bad, the problem, you know, whatever we want to call it. And so that meeting, really, really important. And this was a couple of years ago, you know, we were meeting with someone from a settlement that's just, you know, pretty much a stone's throw from the village. Yeah. And this is close to the end of a, you know, a 10-day retreat or so. And so we knew and we prepare ourselves, this isn't going to be easy. Yeah, we're going to hear things that aren't easy for us. Yeah. We're going to hear things that are really going to trigger us. Yeah, so we kind of prepare that and we kind of settle in to that sense of compassion. And in that particular case, you know, the person we met was, yeah, really challenging to listen to, you know, saying some really difficult things for us to hear. But what was really um, very, very powerful in that meeting was that even though questions were asked, yeah, and things were, views were challenged, you know, that's allowed with compassion also. Yeah, it's not wishy-washy. The strongest sense was of compassion. Now, that was the response. It was so clear. Yeah? So clear. The un, Also, the, the, the suffering. The suffering in, in this other that we could really resonate with. And at some point, you know, and you can also imagine one person meeting a group of... Um, about 15 people, so it's not easy. At some point, um, he was getting very um, kind of upset, you know, getting red and speaking very loudly. And, and you know, I, I was feeling really concerned, yeah, really concerned for him. And he's about 70 years old. And so at some point, I kind of, I was trying to stop him, but he thought I wanted to <laughs> argue with him. So he wasn't really stopping. But at some point, I imagine I said, like, please, can you just stop for a moment? We're not going to say anything. Just please kind of just take a breath. Yeah. Have a drink, drink of water. I'm really concerned for you, for your well-being. And his wife was there. And she was just listening. She was just witnessing. And she looked at me with such gratitude in that moment. Yeah, we shared. We shared that concern. Yeah, we shared that concern. So there's a lot to say about that, yeah, which I'm not going to go into all of it. But just that power of compassion, yeah, that can be there even with someone that we really disagree with. Yeah, on so many levels, but it can be there. This is possible for us. Yeah, it's possible for us. And they can see the humanness in someone who's, who's, you know, making choices that are causing a lot of harm. can see the humanness. And we can still speak up from that. This is really important. Remember the active aspect of compassion. Not passive, 
we can speak from that place. It's possible. And then the effects. Okay? So that was that year. (laughs) The next year, year later, 12 months later, I found myself um, accompanying a a Palestinian family whose olive trees were inside the settlement where this man and his wife lived. Yeah, so this happens. Yeah, inside. And so we had to go there accompanied by soldiers and the security of the settlement and, you know, this huge hoo-ha to, to pick olives. And as you can imagine, you know, it's not a particularly comfortable situation, right? <laughs> yeah. And as we kind of got off the vehicles in the settlement and we're walking with the three soldiers that it's not clear if they're guarding us from the settlers or they're guiding the settlers from us. You know, you don't really know what what are they exactly doing there. But, you know, as we're walking along with the soldiers, a car stops and someone, you know, calls out to me, oh, I know you, the wife. Yeah, the wife. And she said, oh, you know, hello, and how are you doing? And and we'd already arranged to meet with her, her husband again <laughs> in a few days. Yeah. And, you know, so that's going on. And then I see the soldiers looking. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. So later on, we're harvesting, yeah, with the family. We're picking the olives. The soldiers are playing with the dog that's tied up in the yard. And at some point, they come over. And they say to me, ah, and they know I'm Israeli. So they say to me, ah, can we ask you something? Can we ask you something? And I say, of course. So we start talking, yeah? And we start talking. And they ask me, you know, where are you, you know, who are you? What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, so I can tell them. And then they find out that I'm sleeping in a Palestinian village. And then that's kind of mind-blowing for most Israelis. And they say, you're not afraid? You're not afraid? No. Yeah, so we have that conversation. And at lunch, they come back again, and we end up in this bizarre situation where we're all eating lunch together. You know, yeah. So, you know, we never know the ripples. Yeah, we never know the ripples. Yeah. But what does it mean for, you know, a 20-year-old Israeli soldier to understand that, it, you know, you don't need to be afraid of Palestinians, that that's not essential? That that's not the truth. That that is just, you know, one view. What does that mean? And where is that going to go? No idea. Yeah. No idea. We've had Israelis come with us on these retreats who have served, who have done their military service in that area. And they come back as peace activists, you know. 
So that's possible. So we don't know. what the effects are going to be. But they're immeasurable. And maybe that can kind of give us some support knowing that. That, that is what we're practicing for. You know, to nourish that in ourselves and in the world. Every moment of compassion, every moment of metta, that we experience, that we generate, that we share, brings that into the world. And I think that's worth doing. I think that's a good use of a human life. So let's have a moment of silence together. So may our practice together continue to nourish the seeds of compassion, of care, of tenderness in ourselves, for ourselves, in the world, for all beings, everywhere. Thank you for your listening and your presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.